we never really exceeded about 15 feet. That was it. And our task was to, to move Gurkha troops from Goose Green up to the front line. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to the Rotary Wing Show, and tonight I've got uh, Harry Benson on the line. Harry, welcome. Good day. It is, and I guess against the, the time zones, of the the international set up there. So lunchtime in the, in the UK, evening here in Australia, and Harry, we've got you on obviously to talk about the uh, the Falkland War. So you've written a, a book, which is a whole collection of stories that uh, you've interviewed people with, and, and obviously your own experiences uh, during the Falklands flying helicopters. But it's called Scram. The gripping first-hand account of the helicopter war in the uh, Falklands. So we might start with the, the word "scram." If you want to talk about how that came about, Harry, and give the background to, to that. Yeah, the word "scram." When the British fleet was parked in St. Carlos Bay and Port St. Carlos Bay, just after the invasion had happened, it became very obvious that the biggest risk to helicopters flying around the ships and getting stuff offloaded was not from the Argentine jets, um, for whom the helicopters were not really the primary target, but it was more from all the debris and stuff flying around in the air from ships firing off machine guns and all sorts of stuff and seek-out missiles. And so they developed a code system. Uh, one of the guys, one of the flight controllers on, on HMS Fearless, uh, one of the assault ships, worked out a, a system of, of um, codes um, from air raid warning yellow, uh, which meant that there were reports of, of Argentine jets coming in over the islands, air raid warning red, um, that there were jets in the vicinity, and air raid warning red scram, uh, which meant basically hit the deck now um, because there's going to be all sorts of lead flying around in the sky. So that's really what it was. And I, I thought scram was a great name for the book in the end. I want, I was going to call it air raid, air raid warning red scram, but then my publisher thought that was a really cool word, so that's what we used. We might jump back to the, uh, the geography of the Falklands shortly, but there's a sure. couple of stories in, in the book that come straight off this idea that, you know, that would come over the radio and wherever you were, you'd basically try to find a, a gully and, and hide the aircraft. And in many cases, you'd uh, hit the deck and, and jump out and run away. Uh, so if the, the target did get hit on, on the uh, helicopter, at least so the aircrew were okay. But I think there's a story yes. there with uh, was it one of the doctors got uh, left behind in one of these little uh, touchdowns. Oh, uh You've got me there, actually. I can't remember. <laughs> no, that's right. There's, there's a there's a particular a character, ago, I... and you know, I say character. It's obviously a, a real person. Um, there's, a, there's a doctor who features uh, quite heavily in, in the stories there, and I, I'm pretty sure that there's, there's one one stage you talk about the, the aircraft. You know, the scram comes out, they hit the deck, uh, they jump out of the aircraft, but then when they take off, they, they realise they've left. The, uh, the doctor on the ground and have to go back and pick him up. I'm pretty sure that's one of the oh, stories yes. there. But, yeah, look, that, yeah. Uh, I guess let's, let's jump into the, the geography. And I must say before we start 
talking too much about the war and also the geography, I guess growing up in Australia, you know, I would have been in primary school when all this was happening. It, it kind of, and I don't, you know, I mean, no disrespect, obviously, to, to everyone involved, but it was almost like a, a footnote in history. You know, before reading this book, I could have probably told you as much about the Falklands as I could about the, the Boer War. Uh, you know, I knew about uh, Harriers, I knew about Goose Green and maybe three, three Para, but that was probably about as much as I could sort of say anything about the Falklands. So it was a real eye-opener going through this well, and realising like, it was, you know, it was full-on, it was serious stuff. That was pretty much, um, actually, I mean, the, when when the Falklands War kicked off or when Galtieri invaded the Falklands um, in April 1982, I was 21 years old and, you know, we were sitting in here in Somerset in England and I'm in Somerset at the moment, I'm just at the other end of the county and we were at our air base at Yeovilton and, Frankly, nobody knew where the Falklands was. We hadn't a clue. I mean, we were all gazing at maps, wondering whether it was in, in off the north coast of Scotland or somewhere. I mean, our, our knowledge of its geography was pretty hazy as well. And, and it, it wasn't until someone realised, oh, it's 8,000 miles away, just off the coast of Argentina, that we thought, blimey, that's a long way to go. And um, it was a few days into, uh, a few days after the invasion that our then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, decided on the advice of the Navy's second sea lord, Henry Le- Sir Henry Leach, that yeah, we could put a um, we could put a group together and actually get going and and take these things back and actually send a big signal that you don't mess don't mess with us. So we all suddenly thought, you know, my goodness, this could be for real. But we still, it took a long time to realise that actually there was going to be a proper battle here. And I suppose it wasn't really until the sinking of HMS Sheffield on the, I think it was something like the second or third or fourth of May. Oh, it was the Belgrano that went down, first of all. That's right, the Argentine ship that was sunk. But we realised, my goodness, there's no turning back now and um, this is all going to happen for real. And the distance, how far away it is, it becomes a big part of the, the story, not only in your book and the experience of the aircrew there, but obviously the, the actual war. Yeah. You know, to have that force projection to be able to take, and we'll, we'll go through the number of helicopters and, and the people and things like that later on, but to get that yeah. all the way from where England is, uh, and I guess people listening, do you want to just quickly describe where the Falklands are and, and give them an idea of you know the, the islands and, <laughs> and and what was down there? Because you know it doesn't really seem to be much there to be fighting over. It's that bad. I mean, we now live in an era of of mobile phones and Google Maps and stuff, and so you can shove in Falklands and find out exactly where it is. It's a couple of hundred miles off the coast of Argentina, um, right off the tip of Patagonia, so right down at the bottom, just above the Arctic Circle. And so to get us from the UK down to the Falklands um, meant a journey of 8,000 miles. And we staged via some islands in the middle of the Atlantic called, uh, on the equator called Ascension Island. So we had a sort of halfway house, which was very helpful. And that could also be used for launching very, very long range sort of Hercules missions. So we could get airdrops down in the South Atlantic as well. And um, the famous rather inconsequential Vulcan flight that, that bombed or tried to tried to bomb Port Stanley Airfield also came from Ascension Island as well. The history of the place is essentially that back in the 18th century, various traders from Europe set foot on these rather uninhabited, unhospitable islands. Very similar from our point of view to Scotland or Dartmoor or sort of very barren moorland um, with not an awful lot there. 
And um, between the British, the French and the Spanish, they all variously laid claim at one point. So this was long before Argentina came into being. So the, the Argentine claim to the Falklands is really non is, is, has really got no basis in anything because Argentina didn't exist um, until well after the Falklands were uh, inhabited by um, by by the British particularly. But uh, if anyone has a claim to it, it would be the French and the Spanish, but the Argentines certainly didn't. Um, but they were essentially, they invaded the place in order to distract from their own economic woes, which sadly still go on to this day down in Argentina. And that was really what it was all about. In terms of dialing in, there was two islands. So you got east and west, uh, essentially the islands there, and then a, a gap or a strait in the middle. And that's where most of the, yeah. the from what I can tell, the, the UK shipping was then planted there. And Stanley is probably the only, I don't know, if I say it's the only town, it's possibly the, the, the biggest town there. And it's on the extreme right hand edge of the, the right hand island. Uh, and yeah. Uh, I guess the UK forces were landing in the middle and then then moving east towards Stanley for for most of it. Yeah, I mean, an easy way to think about it. I mean, you, it's, you obviously you can look at the map, and you can also um, my book goes into it in some detail. But I mean, if you just put your two hands out in front of you next to your face um, with your um, the back of your hands facing you, the the two islands are the left and right island. Um, and we landed in an area called St. Carlos or Port St. Carlos, which would be by your right thumb. We then crossed all the way across to Stanley, which would be about where your right little finger would be. So from your right thumb to right little finger was where most of the action took place. And Goose Green was always was one of those famous places where there was a big uh, battle between the Paros and the Argies. And that would be down somewhere near where your right wrist would be. So that was um, uh, getting from the right thumb to the right little finger. Um, you have to go via your right wrist to go back up. And running across the ridge of the island in between the two was a, a huge ridge line of, of really quite difficult hills. They, they weren't enormous mountains, but they were. it was a big ridge line. And so realistically, the only way that you could get across the islands um, was by, by helicopter, um, although the Paras and the Marines, because they were so sh we were so short of helicopters, in the end, after the landings took place, the Paras and the Marines did actually yomp or tab all the way across the islands, which was a pretty epic march. And, you know, they rediscovered the joys of, of World War One trench foot because it was just so wet and horrible. It was basically like Scotland in the middle of winter, that kind of scenery with a big mountain range in the middle. And we, we had to get along the spine of the mountains to get to liberate Port Stanley, which was really a collection of ramshackle, red and green roofed buildings uh, with a harbour next to it. And that was about it. You can jump on uh, Google Earth at the moment with the street view and actually sort of stand in, in the street and look around uh, there in Stanley at the moment. Yes. And again, it doesn't look that much different. Like it's just... Uh, it's super bare, like it's just rock, rocky little hills. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a lot of vegetation there at all. No, I mean one one of the, uh, the one of, there's a very funny comment actually that one of my um, colleagues told me afterwards when I was um, when I was doing the um, uh, when I was actually writing the book and interviewing, and they'd had a little peek at, at, at Port Stanley. So towards the end of the war, when we'd actually pushed the troops across the islands and we had got within striking range of, of Port Stanley in the last few miles. They took their helicopter, their Wessex helicopter up for a little peek over the top of one of the hills and promptly, of course, attracted a whole load of artillery fire. But they had a look over the top and there was Port Stanley and they said to each other, well, we weren't ex exactly expecting skyscrapers, but God, it's disappointing.
And that was <laughs> that was pretty much it, actually. <laughs> that was pretty much it, really, frankly. It was, um, it, it, it was <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I look back now as a, an adult a long, way, a long way on in life and thinking, my goodness, was it really worth it? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, at the time, though, it just seemed like a good idea. And frankly, in terms of black and white wars, this was about as black and white as it got. You had some baddies invading British territory, clearly British sovereign territory, and they needed to be removed. But oh my goodness, you know, 600 odd Argentines lost their life, 250 of ours lost their lives, lots of wounds, lots of people injured and wounded, um, and a lot of trauma that people have carried on for many, many years. It was pretty much a mess. We'll come, I guess, back to the, the sort of the human cost and things later on, but the, the sure. weather, what, what was the weather down there? Well, I mean, it all happened in May, June, uh, 1982 may june being south atlantic weather as it would be in oz it, it, it was it was winter and so the weather was really very variable i mean it was not quite in the arctic circle um just above but pretty grim really and i mean my main memories of the weather are that we varied from these extraordinarily beautiful clear days with crisp air and blue skies and absolutely fabulous um really cold and but not biting and and beautiful scenery with these rolling hills and sort of deep grass and hillocks and tussocks and stuff all the way through to snowstorms that would appear out of nowhere i mean on one particular day just after the war ended i was just trying to cross a, a little inlet and I had an underslung load underneath me. And the day had been absolutely crisp and clear and beautiful the day, um, that day. And we'd even been up in a, you know, for a commando helicopter pilot, I went up to 5,000 feet just to see the view because it was so amazing. And, and uh, you know, despite being warned that you get nosebleeds if you go above 30 feet. Anyway, we, we, which is where we'd spent most of our time. But I went across this inlet and uh, suddenly this snowstorm appeared absolutely out of the blue. And I had to I had to turn on a sixpence, go and put the load back down on the ground, land next to it just as the snowstorm hit. This vicious snowstorm built up so much snow in the uh, inlet of my in, my intake, which is just in the Wessex. It's just below the, the cockpit. And, um, and a wadge of snow then went and flamed out one of my engines. It was the only engine failure I had while I was there. But um, it, it just came out of the blue. And that's what we were faced with. And also, of course, sometimes we were flying in snowstorms when we we're over minefields. So you had this sort of terrible dilemma. Do you uh, put yeah, down do you an air? I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, what on earth do you do? Well, the answer was to try and avoid the snowstorms in the first place. I think the other thing was the wind. And that was I, we ended up I, I ended up being based on the islands for three and a half months for I was there for the last 10 days or so for the war. The war. I mean, it was only a six-week war anyway. And then, uh, so I was there for half of the land war. And then about three and a bit months afterwards. But the wind was just relentless. When it blew, it just you, you'd just feel sick. Um, and I spent most of my time with that balaclava over my ears just to try and keep the, the wind out. And on one particular day, um, in fact, it was my very last flight on the Falklands. We had to fly across the islands back from Port Stanley all the way across to St. Carlos to go and unload our colleagues from uh, one of the ships um, that had brought them all down from Ascension Island. So we, we were getting a replacement air crew at last, and we were the last fighting unit to go home. And uh, as, we, uh, as we set off, we realized that we were heading into a 60-knot um, headwind. So it took absolutely ages to get across the islands into this, into this fierce gale. 
And I remember sitting in the hover alongside the ship with, with 55 knots sitting on the clock and all the turbulence that that brings. And, and that was quite unnerving, actually. I mean, we were very, very good at handling bad weather conditions at that stage because we'd done so much of it, but it was still rather unnerving. Of course, the return journey took about 10 minutes because we were going <laughs> yeah. tail tailwheel up our chuff. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the risk was overshooting and ending up somewhere in the middle of the South Atlantic. And not being able to get back. Yeah, exactly, yeah. All right, well, we talked about, um, I guess, you know, having to get the ships down there, and this is something I didn't realise as well, because I guess you get spoiled and you think about a, a modern sort of deployment where you've got uh, galaxies and, you know, Hercules and all these sort of things to fly everything into the uh, the operating area. But but everything essentially came down on a ship or was dropped, you know, essentially in the ocean off, uh, off Hercules yeah. and then picked up. So I've got numbers here. that the a task force that was 46, and this is actually leaving England, uh, 46 Wessex, 24 Sea Kings, and, and four Chinooks was what left England. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a sizable force, but to think that all that and all the parts and all the spares and then all the, uh, the obviously, the, the land forces, everything went down on, on a ship. Yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary um, logistical achievement. I mean, it started off with with Maggie's decision to, Margaret Thatcher's decision to go for it, and the Navy got cracking in the way that, that navies like doing and um, and just threw everything onto every single ship that we had. And of course, it was it was utterly chaotic. So halfway down to the Falklands, everybody had to stop at uh, Ascension Island and um, do a whole load of cross decking of helicopter lifts, moving stuff from ship to ship in order to try and sort out the mayhem um, that had um, that had ensued. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we sent a lot of helicopters down and we couldn't do anything like that today. The British Navy um, is emaciated in that respect. I'm mean, still very, very good. And actually, my experience of, of seeing some of the modern warriors is that they're um, probably a lot more professional than we were and, and they plan a lot better. But ha- having said that, I mean, we had a lot more machines and we had a lot more stuff, a lot more ships. And it was just it was a mess getting down there. And initially, of course, the first group um, went off to go and fight the war. So there was a there was a, um, a, a maritime group, which was the battle group, which consisted of HMS Hermes, the carrier, and, and a through deck cruiser called HMS Invincible. And from those, we had um, the Harriers, which really, frankly, without those, we would have lost. We would never have got anywhere near the Falklands because they, I think their record was something like 21-0 in air-to-air combat, which is pretty phenomenal. You know, I mean, we bang on about this. In, in the UK, we talk about how it's the 100th year of the Royal Air Force. But since the, pretty much since the Second World War, the only air-to-air combat has been from the fleet air arm. And it's this extraordinary track record of 21-0. So the Harriers were amazing. And then behind the battle group, there came an amphibious group, which was really all the transport ships and um, assault ships, uh, HMS Fearless and HMS Intrepid and, and others, which were then due to land the Marines and the Paras and the Gurkhas and the Special Forces and the like, and all of us um, onto the islands. Um, so there were these two groups. And then, of course, a whole whole group of, of um Royal Fleet Auxiliaries to um, to to supply. So I mean I can't imagine the logistical nightmare for the whole thing. But anyway, somehow it got it, it happened. I love this one bit. Uh, we talk about where they're actually at the halfway point in Ascension Island and they're sorting everything out. 
And obviously there's a lot of vert rep stuff going on with moving supplies from the ships to the shore and then back. Uh, but again, there's so many ships parked off the shore that basically you said the helicopters had to come, basically hover next to the bridge, read the sign on the ship to work out what ship it was and hop from ship to ship until they found the, the ship that they had to take the, the supplies to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was, I mean, we, you know, you think now, we, we look back now from a time where we've all got these amazing pocket computers, which sit in our, uh, you know, uh, which we carry around with us that allow us to communicate and give us GPS uh, tracking and all sorts of amazing things. Back then, everything was done, you know, with Mark 1 eyeball, um, you know, we had no nav aids on our on our aircraft at all. I mean, we had a thing called an ADF needle, which was uh, literally it used to swing from left to right, depending on whether uh, the, the transmission um, of the, the radio signal was from the left or the right of the nose. And and that was about it. And a compass. And um, the rest of it, we used to joke was when you're flying around at sea it was all local area knowledge. Um, which of course isn't isn't going to get you very far if you haven't been to the South Atlantic. But um, no, you know, knowing which ship um, you were going to was always a very very risky business. So an awful lot of the time, every any time we were flying, I mean, around Ascension Island, it was straightforward because you could see land and you knew where the ships were. So the biggest issue there was was what what on earth is this ship? And when you've got seven LSLs, landing ship logistics, you know, the the two that got bombed in the Falklands, famously, Galahad and Tristram. There were a whole bunch of other ones, Bedivere, and I can't remember the names now, but I think there were about seven of them. So, you know, if you had to take a load to one of these ships, you hadn't the faintest idea which one it was. And, and that's why we had to read signs from the bridge. And of course, they're navigating across the sea, you know, when, when, the, when the fleet was underway or when your ships were underway was a, a, a whole different thing. And I mean, that was, that was the bread and butter stuff of being a Navy pilot. And frankly, many of us, um, especially us 21-year-olds, um, this was the first time we'd been to sea, even though we were Royal Navy pilots. We'd done a little bit of deck landing training as part of our, our, our operational qualification. But beyond that, we hadn't really spent very much time at sea. So we got really, really good at being safe at sea and learning not to rely on your ship, you know, because they would head off in one direction and then suddenly you discover they've gone in a different direction. You have to keep track of their position. You've got to keep track of the wind. So it was all very much um, relative dead reckoning in your heads. Um, and we became very, very, very good navigators um, as a result. I hear this from Navy pilots all the time that uh, sometimes it, sh- it seems like the ship is working against them, that exactly that situation. They'll go out on a mission and come back and the ship's moved. And they'll be trying to call yeah. them up, and, and the ship has decided that they're going to be in radio silence until they uh, <laughs> things start getting dicey with fuel. Yes, and that's one of the one of the big issues that um, continues to this day is that you know we've just we've got actually at about this moment we've got the first of the modern batch of F thirty five fighters arriving from the states either today or this week, and it's a joint venture between the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy. And the thing that I think the thing it's it's going to cause an enormous problem. and It's already caused an enormous problem that the, the there's a big culture difference between the Royal Navy and the Air Force and the Army to some extent. The Navy and the Army are, are very expeditionary oriented and realize that everything that we do is we are just one aspect of the bigger picture. Whereas Royal Air Force culture tends to be that, you know, you're king of the airfield and everything goes and, and you transfer that mentality onto a ship and it's going to make you very unpopular very, very quickly. 
And so there were, there were culture, culture clashes even within our forces. But we had some terrific RAF guys on exchange on our squadron. In fact, one of the guys I flew with into battle and got shot at very heavily, subsequently became the head of the entire Air Force. And, um, and, and you know, he's a terrific guy. And, and actually, he, it's better, obviously, that he's now jungly. He was jungly trained. So but we had a, a jungly running the Air Force, which was good. But um, there was this real culture issue that, you know, you had to realize that as a helicopter pilot or indeed any any air crew, you were just part of the deal there you were part of the defense in depth um, running from a ship and so quite often they wouldn't think about you so you had to be very very aware of where you were and look after yourself otherwise you'd very very quickly find yourself sunk you know and that happened to a number of our colleagues on missions who were sent off to go and investigate a contact go and have a look at it and then suddenly discover that you know they um they, they've got an awful long way to get back and and if the ship won't tell them where they are then they're going to have to come and find the ship you know they're going to have to come and find a, a ditched helicopter very soon unless they get on with it so there was a lot of skin of the teeth stuff i mean all of us had stories of getting extremely low on fuel because we couldn't find ships yes yeah, it's, it's amazing and these aren't all necessarily navy ships because if we want to talk about the atlantic conveyor now actually before we get on that i must say that the royal navy has got the uh the best ship names ever like i'm reading through your book and you know each time you introduce a new ship it's like oh that's like the most awesome name for a ship <laughs> yeah, there's a lot out of Greek mythology, things like HMS Andromeda, wonderful. <laughs> but, yeah, but but not all of them were necessarily Navy ships. So, you know, war breaks out and it looks like they, they go down to the uh, the docks in uh, in London and just grab container ships. So the Atlantic Conveyor was one of these. So it was a, a Cunard uh, container ship. Can you just talk through what that looked like in terms of a ship and, and with the aircraft sitting on it? Yes, I mean there were actually they they um, they requisitioned two. They were called stuffed S, um, ships taken up from trade, um, and um, and there was a sort of there was a a, a a plan lurking in the background, actually a contingency plan um, for this kind of thing happening one day. Because I I subsequently met somebody, one of the guys who happened to be our engineering officer on on my squadron, um, at one point told me that he'd actually been to visit some of these ships as part of his role in in the Ministry of Defence. Um, but the Atlantic conveyor was a, a big old container ship, and what they did was it had a it had the big sort of superstructure at the back, and then a, a fairly small flight deck at the back. Uh, but out in front, a bit like a, a bit like a big tanker or a container ship, there was where you parked everything. And so what they did for conveyor, and which was the one that got sunk, and then also its sister ship, Atlantic Causeway, which is what my my squadron um, came went went down, or half of my squadron went down on. They built essentially a wall of containers, a protective wall of containers, at, at the front of the deck and then down the sides. And then within that area, they then put all the aircraft that were then transported south. So there were a whole bunch of Harriers, for example, which were rather unwisely wrapped up in plastic. And then, of course, by the time they got to the equator and, and beyond, then there were some quite serious problems with their avionics, uh, you know, once the, from the condensation inside. But we sent, we had a lot of Wessex were sent down on these ships and um, the, uh, the, the conveyor had, uh, the, which was the one that was sunk, I think had four Chinooks, uh, one of which happened to be off when it got sunk. Uh, three of them were lost. We lost six Wessex from that ship. We lost three Lynxes, but we could have also have lost a whole load of Harriers as well, which were the things that really won the war for us because they got off early and they'd flown down to um, sit on the carriers. 
So these were these were big container ships. Uh, but that, they had that a big container a, ship gets small awfully quick once you start putting that many aircraft on it. So when they're taking off and landing on that ship, they, yes, there, there right. will be a lot of yeah, lot clearance. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In terms of when that did get sunk, so I don't know if you want to talk about you know the the uh, the mirages and the, the exocet missiles there, but the notes I've got here is at that time there was fifteen troops carrying helicopters on the island. So there's ten Sea Kings, five Wessex, and the one Chinook they got off. So to lose you know, a bunch of helicopters when that went down, that must have been a like a, a really big hit to the forces there. It's probably quite helpful to have an idea of the, the timeline of things. Um, Galtieri invaded the Falklands. Um, there was a little sideshow down in, in South Georgia that happened beforehand, and I start the book with a, a crazy um, uh, attempt by the uh, our special forces to go and um, land on a glacier and then try and attack the one very, very small um, whaling station, which had Argentine troops on it from the rear, uh, as the special forces like to do. Um, and they got stranded and, and a couple of our guys ended up crashing um, and had to be rescued in a very brave mission. Um, so there was a bit of a sideshow in, in, in South Georgia uh, that really happened right at the beginning. So um, from early April was when the, the task force sailed um, and they arrived in the Falklands in, in area uh, around about the 1st of May or 30, 30th of April. And um, so the sea battle really took place from the 30th of May onwards, and the war ended on the 14th of June. So it really wasn't a very long time. The whole thing took six weeks. The actual invasion uh, happened on the 20... Oh, I've now forgotten it now. I think it was the 21st of May. That's right, 21st of May. So there was three weeks of sea battle uh, where a couple of ships got sunk and then there were lots of jets fighting each other, the Mirages against the Harriers. The Harriers never lost any of those battles, but the Mirages had realised fairly quickly that they, they needed to escape. And then from the 21st of May onwards, that was when the landings took place. Initially, there were a bunch of ships went into St. Carlos Water, offloaded um, Paris and Marines. There, were, there was very little resistance at first, and, and that invasion was preceded by a, a, um, a special forces raid on Pebble Island, which was on the west island of the Falklands, so the left, left-hand side just across Falkland Sound. Uh, and so from the 21st of May onwards, really, then that was when they, they spent a lot of time building up the beachhead and sending in transport ships. And it was four days later on the 25th of May, uh, which tra- sadly is uh, Argentine National Day, was when the Atlantic conveyor and also HMS Coventry, one of our Type 42 destroyers, um, was sunk. Um, uh, uh, the, the conveyor was trying to get into Falkland Sound um, to offload all these helicopters. And so that was an enormous loss. Um, so we built up this beachhead um, from the 21st of May with lots of troops dug in. And then four days later, um, with all the air raids that took place, the famous air raids from Skyhawks and Mirages um, dropping over the fleet and being shot at by everybody. And, and the, the, trying to get conveyor in was actually an important move because it, there was a tent city on board. There was all sorts of tracking so that you could build a runway for the Harriers um, in the area and all sorts of other stuff, as well as not to mention this, this whole group of helicopters. So it was a massive loss, and that changed the course of the battle, and it made the British commanders realise that actually the only way to get across the islands now from the beachhead, which is about 35 miles in total, was to to march or walk. And so they they sent half of the troops across um, the northern sector, and and then half went down the southern sector, 
through the area known as Goose Green, which was a really a small hamlet with a little grass airstrip next to it. And, um, and, and the Paras had their famous battle at, at, at Goose Green and then moved on. And that, that southern contingent then also then moved on to a place called Fitzroy, which was where just towards the end of the war, the, the two ships, Galahad and Tristram, were bombed by the Argentines trying to offload a whole bunch of stuff, including the Welsh guards, um, many of whom were killed. And um, so that was really it. And then, then the final battles in the last was really in the last three days around the hills around Stanley, which were pretty gruesome and um, uh, and also very exciting. So, I mean, anyone who was around in those last three, four days um, saw an awful lot of action. That was really, really where it was concentrated in. So that's really the timeline. It's, it was a six week war of which three was mostly sea battles and then and then the landings from from three weeks out. And that was it. It's crazy. And again, when you read through the book, it's just something happening all the time. Uh, so what I might do, I'll just pull out a couple of helicopter stories in because, again, sure. I guess we've, we'll tease people with uh, going and reading the book for the, for the full stories. But before when you said yeah. that, you know, if, if you go above 30 feet, you get a nosebleed, you, you're not kidding, are you? Because <laughs> you, you guys were low, low. Oh, it was super low. I mean, the, it was absolutely incredible. I, I think um, the first day I arrived halfway through the land law, land war. So I, you know, we had about we were about ten days out when our ship arrived in among in amongst the fleet, and and I got the last week of the war, which doesn't sound very much, but it was it was plenty of time for action. I mean, my first day, just to give an idea of what was going on. We were plonked at, at Port St. Carlos. There were about 40 of us crammed into a tent in the middle of the night, you know, as our early morning briefing in pitch black. And, and, and most, it was the most extraordinary scene, this in, incredible camaraderie of this, um, I don't know what the collective noun is for a group of um, jungly pilots, but um, we were all Wessex pilots and we had about 25 Wessex on the island at that stage. And um, and we were all parked out on the hillside, um, just in literally in the middle of nowhere on the grass. And and so you'd be allocated your aircraft. My aircraft was, uh, I remember it extremely well. It was the one no one else wanted to fly. And I flew with a, uh, my intro flight was with a Royal Marine pilot called Mark Evans, who actually lives in, in Brisbane um, and flew with the Australian Army uh, as an instructor. And uh, he and I took took off and this beautiful sunny day, absolutely crisp, clear day. And we never really exceeded about 15 feet. That was it. Um, and our task was to to move a bunch of Gurkhas, um, Gurkha troops from Goose Green up to the front line, which was just beyond Fitzroy and, and past these burning ships. And it was the most extraordinary experience because, you know, I was a 21 year old. I'd been through training. I'd literally finished training. A matter of weeks earlier, I'd popped out of the training pipeline two and a half years as a, as a, a, a trainee. I'd been, we'd been sent to Northern Ireland to go and do that because that was still going on. I mean, the whole, this whole thing happened at the height of the Cold War and also the Northern Irish Troubles. Um, so that was the sort of context. So no one was really expecting this. And um, so I popped out of training and um, I felt inc- my, for my first flight in the Falklands, really, I was thinking, you know, why is why am I why am I being shepherded with another pilot in the aircraft? Because actually, frankly, I'm, I can do this stuff on my own. Now, it was just as well because I was 21. And, and although we were well trained, um, of course, as soon as you unstrap us from the helicopter, we were pretty much 21 year old idiots. But once you put us in the thing, we all felt really, really well trained and very, very capable and, and were 
were very much up to the job. So it's an extraordinary testimony to the ability of, of 21-year-olds to do extraordinary things. So we flew over the hills and we went down to Goose Green, landed there and, and could see all the debris of battle which had been fought a matter of days earlier by the paras against the Argentines. And so there were helmets and all sorts of debris and guns stacked all over the place. And there was even some oil drums full of napalm uh, next to one of the settlements, um, which was pretty nasty. Um, the Argentines never used it on us, but they, they had it available, as we discovered. And there were also some blown out remains of these Pucara two-engine turboprop um, aircraft, which we thought were our biggest threat. And also the remains of a Harrier that had been shot down over the airfield by some uh, anti-aircraft fire. And so it was all it was all pretty much sort of in-your-face battle um, stuff. You know, first landing, you land on, on this flat, uh, grassy area. And um, a bunch of Gurkhas um, come towards you. And, and the Gurkhas are absolutely wonderful. I mean, ter absolutely terrifying. They're generally speaking, not very tall. This sounds awful as I'm saying it. They're generally speaking, not very tall. But you see these guys walking towards you with all their camouflage kit and these enormous Bergens um, and armed to the teeth. And just this pair of teeth grinning at you at the front, gleaming white teeth. They're absolutely thrilled that they're not going to have to yomp across the island, that, that somebody's going to give them a lift. So we packed them all into the back. I think we put a dozen each time into the back of a Wessex with all their kit. And we were horribly overloaded. So getting off the ground was, was pretty exciting. Um, literally, we got off to about a one foot hover and then just put the nose very, very gradually down. And we're pulling, pulling full power at that stage. And then just ease off um, into what wind there was and, and try and get some forward speed. And of course, once you got past 20, 25 knots, you got transitional lift and then, um, and then it was all a lot easier. And then you could go up a bit. Uh, and we then flew really with these guys on board. We did a whole bunch of loads. We moved an entire, entire unit um, across the islands. We flew at about 15 feet. And um, uh, I suppose it, we flew at 15 feet because... The first mark on the radio altimeter was at, at 20 feet. Um, and really sitting up in the, in the Wessex cockpit, we were about eight feet above the ground. So um, it was really about the safest that you could, safest height you could fly at, to stay low, to be least observable by any enemy troops that happened to be on the ground. We had no idea really whether they were or weren't. And also it, made, it meant that you were able to take advantage of gullies and fly down little, you know, little valleys along the way and hopefully stay out of sight of any marauding A4s or Mirage that might want to take a pot shot at you. And, um, and then we were faced, as we got across the islands, with this horrifying sight of, of Galahad and Tristram, these two burning ships uh, in front of us. And then we'd drop off our Gurkhas on the front line and then turn around and go back and get some more. And at some point, you'd have to think about fuel. The helicopter I was in on that first day had had its front first front left window blown out by um, actually by British ammunition. It was one. It was sitting on the ground when an air raid came in a couple of days earlier, and um, and and the, the guy, one of my colleagues was sitting in the right hand seat and, and announced to his crewman that he'd been shot as this bullet evaporated his left left window and and it, and, and, and actually it hits it hit a metal spar um, by his left shoulder and then dropped down. So I think he's still got the bullet to this day. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. But what they'd done in, in order to patch up this thing, of course, with no spares or anything like that, um, they'd patched up the windscreen with Fablon. I mean, you know, this 
non-see-through. I mean, it was translucent at best, but basically we had one windscreen, but you couldn't see a thing out of it. And the Wessex visibility was pretty dire at the best of times, um, especially if it was raining and the windscreen wipers would just smear grease all over the windscreen. And often we used to just fly with the, win the windows um, pulled open and stick your head out the door. It was often the easiest way when, when it was raining. But on this particular day, we had a helicopter that had um, armor plating on it. So it meant armor plating under our, under our bums, under our seats, and also armor plating by our side doors, which further reduced the visibility because um, you have this great stocking, great big lump of lead down by your right hand side as you're flying along. But it was all very exciting. And, we, you know, we flew at about 15 feet. One of my colleagues was a complete nutter who was subsequently caught marshaled and thrown out of the Navy for dangerous flying. Wonderful man. And I love him to bits. Um, but um, you have to read about him. <laughs> but he used to we used to see him flying around at five feet and going, oh, for heaven's sake, come on, you can come up from that. Great. Very skillful pilot, but not very good captaincy. Yeah, and you cover that in the book there. And I guess, the you know, we're obviously talking about a shooting war here too, but the noise of the helicopter, you talk in the book about, you know, people would come back and have, you know, shots, you know, holes in the aircraft, and they'd put silver tape over it, to, but they wouldn't actually know at yes. the time they'd been hit. But then the other no. one the other one you talk about is the mortar rounds landing, because obviously, you know, you can't hear the actual rounds going off. You just see the, the no. dirt um, exploding in front of you. No, I mean, there was... Um, Two things, like two separate stories really here. One was the, 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 the one thing that I did hear outside the, outside the cockpit was we were taking some um, ammunition up to a, a battery position on top of Mount Kent, which was one of the big hills overlooking Port Stanley. And quite a few helicopters were involved in this move. So we would lift all this ammunition up and then hover next to these, um, uh, these huge howitzer guns. And, you know, as you're hovering next to the thing, it goes off. And the, honestly, the blast, it just, uh, I mean, we, we nearly shat ourselves. So excuse my French, but that was the best way to describe it. It was absolutely terrifying. This monumental explosion right next to us as these huge howitzers launch their fire and flames and death and destruction onto the Argentines at uh, the other end of it. And that, that you definitely could hear exactly what was going on. The rest of the time, you... No, you couldn't hear a thing. Um, and we we all came under either mortar fire or artillery fire. And everybody in the squadron, everyone in my squadron, my sister squadron, all got hit at some point. And I mean, there was one particular time where we were doing a, a drop. -up. We would actually, um, it was, uh, I think it was a sort of second or third from last day. And the British troops were, do were, were doing the final assault on these hills. Um, and they had hills. They had names to conjure with. If you're if you're uh, from the Falklands era, from Mount Longdon and Mount Harriet and Two Sisters and Tumbledown, all these marvelous names. But they were really pretty horrendous experiences for the poor old Paras and Marines and Scots Guards and Gurkhas who were involved in the actual assault. Um, so there we are. We're sitting up in our nice, comfy helicopters flying at extreme low level. We were basically hover taxiing to go in to pick up the wounded from these hills little realising that we could be seen from right down the, the ridgeway by the Argentine artillery spotters. So, so of course, as soon as we arrive uh, on this hillside, which has just been taken by the British forces literally hours earlier, and we're sitting on the front line there with Argentine troops just on the other side of the hills, 
all this artillery fire starts coming raining down on us. And, and it was extraordinarily close. The, the helicopter in front of me actually had mud splattered onto their windscreen um, from the blast. But they didn't hear a thing, not a thing, because the, the noise of, you know, two large gnome en engines in front of you and a socking great big gearbox um, going for it behind your, behind your head. You couldn't hear a thing outside the cockpit, except for these, um, if you were next to these howitzers, which were absolutely terrifying, and I can still hear them now. I still jump today when people make a loud bang. It's because of those damn howitzers. The, uh, uh, it's appalling. Stay, stayed with me for 30-something years now. Yeah, last thing I've heard in a helicopter is a 50 cal sniper rifle in, in the back, and yeah, I thought the helicopter was coming apart when I heard yeah. that thing go off in the back. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah I can imagine. Look, I'm going to race through this. It's just like it's just incredible. It's just story after story. But you talk there about some of the Kazavaks uh, near the front line having to hover. But there's one where they actually have to go up at night, uh, unaided, and the only way they can get there is again just hover taxi up this hill to the to the front line. Um, so I don't know if you if you remember that story uh, where they actually got to put the yeah, searchlights on. That was the same guy, actually, um, that I was talking about, who did my intro flight. He, he, he was this Royal Marine pilot called Mark Evans, who was known as Joke Flight Royal. Joke Flight being one of the flights in the squadron, Sea Flight. And then he was Royal, for short for Royal Marine. And uh, he, he's, you know, some of your listeners may even know him, actually. He's up in, in Brisbane area, um, Jafer. But he and a, another guy called Noddy Morton had to go and do a... Um, had to go and do a pickup and it was pitch black and literally i mean this is in the days before night goggles so it was all done visually and in terms of shades of blackness quite i mean really terrifying actually to think about i mean we we did some night flying uh, i did some night flying in the falklands and every time it got dark you know we were we were literally wet we were wetting ourselves because it were the, the question is do you put your spotlight on to try and find see where you are and basically illuminate yourself as a target or do you try and land with the lights off and in this particular case he was he was doing a pickup from the front line so the lights was not going to be much of an issue i think they used um, an ident light um, which was the lowest possible light that they happened to have in order to to do some illumination but um literally through the darkness they could see these these spots of black appearing around them as the artillery fire rained down around them i mean horrendous incredibly brave and, and extraordinary now looking back because of course now everybody's used to night vision goggles but then it was all done with a mark one eyeball so it was um it was real seat of the pants stuff extraordinary because I, I think and I, you know i don't know if i got the right number but there was like six very very early generation uh, night vision goggles on the on the whole, you know, in the whole AO, and they were essentially yes. shared between a, a couple of Sea King crews who who did some sneaky. Yes, stuff. there were some more. There were some more arrived later on, actually. But yeah, our sister squadron, eight four six squadron, had. Um, I mean, we had no idea about this, so we, this was all news to us, um, and uh, and of course it was news to everybody um, that that. Um, uh, one of the guys who was a test pilot, who in fact ended up joining my squadron as a Wessex pilot, he was a, happened to be at, at um, Farnborough where they were testing out these night vision kit. And um, but I think the Americans had lent them or whatever. And they happened to have, they, they flew them down to Ascension Island and, and they had seven pairs given to the Seeking pilots. And these were used for the inserts of the SAS and SBS troops in the sort of run up to the 
initial landings, and they were also used for the for the for the attack on. Um, uh, oh, I've forgotten the name of the island now. Anyway, the the, the attack on on all the Argentine aircraft just before the before the main landings, um, and I don't know how much effect these. SAS and SBS spotter deployments actually had. I, I just don't know. I mean, I suppose the British forces were, the, the, the um, hierarchy were a lot better informed as a result of it. But I'm not sure it actually particularly, it probably gave better information, but I don't think it changed the course of the battle particularly. But that was really the only time the, the, um, the night vision goggles were used. And of course, they were used on there was a, a, a seeking raid on the mainland where the idea was to put a bunch of SAS troops onto mainland Argentina to go and take out the Mirage base. It, it, by all accounts, it, it, it would, be, would have been a suicide mission. And um, there's actually a book about it called Special Forces Pilot, where one of the guys from 846 wrote, wrote about the story. And I'm not 100% sure that all of the truth of that particular mission has yet come out. I don't know any more than was written in the book, actually, frankly. Uh, but the, it, it ended up being aborted. I mean, they got the seeking into Argentina and, they, and then eventually flew across the border into Chile and, and ditched it and abandoned it and blew it up. But there was another couple of sets of, of night, night vision goggles disappeared on that raid. Um, guess, so there were, I, I guess, just to... I think there were seven altogether. That was it. You know, so the rest of it, we did everything with the Mark I eyeball. So we were pretty much limited to most of our flying. Um, with most of the helicopters that were there, we had to do during the daytime because it was all very much done visually. And I guess just to fill in that one there, you talk about that, that seeking uh, heading off to the, to the mainland. Again, if you look on the map and see how far away the Falklands are, so that, that was like a, always going to be a, a one-way trip. So it was basically a fully bombed up seeking and just, exactly. flew, just flew west with, with, with zero plan of coming home. It did, and they, and it was um, bearing in mind that you they had to launch they had to launch um, from the carrier group, and the carrier group spent most of their time about two hundred miles east of the Falklands because they wanted to remain outside of the range of the Argentine jets. I think they came just about near enough to get closer, but they they still had about a 300, 300 mile run to get into um, Argentina and and then abandoned eventually in in Chile when they gave up. But uh, it, it, that was a hell of a run. And that's a, that's a really good book to read as well. That's by another jungly pilot called Richard, Hutch, Richard Hutchings, and it's called Special Forces Pilot. And that's definitely well worth a, well worth a read. I, I've written up that, of course, as part of my book as well. So all of, all of these missions were, were included in that because I talked to most people along the way. Well, let's just finish on the MVGs. And I guess there's too many stories to, to cover here, and then you might just want to talk about how you put, pulled all these stories together. But I guess just to tie in with like how new these MVGs were is people were basically learning on the way down. And I love that there's a quote here that one chap was obviously flying them and he said, you know, how do you fly with these things? You know, they seem so blurred. And then the other pilot says, well, you know, you can adjust the focus, don't you? And he'd been flying along, obviously, with out-of-focus yeah. MVGs. That's, that's how new everyone was to them. Oh, it was, it was hilarious. But he'd, he'd done an entire mission out of focus, <laughs> wondering how on earth these things work. And, and yeah, he realised that you had to adjust the knob, and, and, and suddenly it all became all, all came into focus. Yeah, no, it was all it was all very very new. And I mean, us poor little Wessex pilots, we were very much afterthought, so we didn't get anywhere near any of this stuff. The seekings at that stage were brand new, and before they've got got kitted out with all the other stuff that they ended up being loaded up with in Afghanistan, you know, they could lift roughly twice what a Wessex could lift. So 
they were a, they were a real step up for us at that time. But of course, by the time that Seeking finished its service in the last few years, there had been so many add-ons and bits and pieces thrown into the things that it was probably more the equivalent of flying a Wessex now. You know, in terms of payloads and stuff. So, look, if you're listening to this, I hope we've, you know, given you an interest. Like, we haven't even talked about the, the one Chinook. There was like one Chinook in the whole war, essentially, it was on. So, there's a heap of uh, funny uh, inter service uh, little stories there as well. But uh, I, yeah. I guess, Harry, if you want to talk, how, how'd, you, how'd you pull it all together? So, uh, yeah, if you want to talk about the, when the meetup afterwards. Well- it started, the whole thing started, but I'd, I'd written bits of my own story down and I'd had thoughts about writing about it, but it, the whole thing crystallized when we were, it was the 25th anniversary of the Falklands War and um, uh, there was a, a, an official march pass from the, the Mall down to Buckingham Palace and all that stuff. Uh, in the night before, a bunch of us junglies, um, particularly Wessex pilots, about 20 of us got together in a pub in Whitehall and we really, we started talking and telling these extraordinary stories about going head to head with a skyhawk or or having a couple of surface to air missiles fired at you and watching the you know watching the flames of these things this orange ball coming towards you and sort of saying saying to yourself quietly yeah it's going to run out of fuel before it gets to us because because we're outside its range and and do you really believe that so uh, some extraordinary things and the rescues um, that took place all the way through. I mean, there's an extraordinary rescue from HMS Antelope in Falkland Sound on the 21st of May, the first day of the invasion, and where a, a doctor was was lowered down into the water without any kind of survival suit into water that can't have been much more than three degrees in temperature to right next to a burning ship, which has had its back end blown off, um, to go and pull a couple of guys out of the water who'd been blown into the water. Um, so there's some extraordinary rescues. There were the number of stories that came out of the blue when I, I anyway, I, I basically I, I, I realized in that moment that I needed to write all this stuff down. And of course, my uh, there was also a story of my colleague who who'd launched a couple of air surface missiles into ho- hoping to take out the Argentine high command in Port Stanley and, had, and had attracted a great deal of artillery fire in return for his for his um, as, a, as a price for his this particular mission. So there were all these stories of rescues and, and missiles and being shot at and shooting at people and head-to-heads with Argentine jets and all the stuff that we'd done. And we realized that although as helicopter pilots, we'd sort of assumed that we all did the same things. Actually, we realized that we hadn't. We'd done all quite different things. And I suppose the thing that I realized was that I, I just thought someone's got to write about this because between the lot of us, we had seen the entirety of the Falklands War. And when you go through these things, you don't really know what's going on. I mean, the briefings were, you know, pretty lightweight, really. Um, we were told the minimum we needed to to be given at any particular moment. Uh, I never really understood most of the story of the Falklands War. But actually, when I decided to write it and then had to have the guts to go and approach all these other guys um, who were, of course, I was the junior Joe in the squadron at that time. So even 25 years on going and approaching people, I still felt like I was the junior Joe, you know, even though I was in my 40s at that stage. Yep. Um, and, and it was still kind of an odd experience to go and say, but people were thrilled and they were absolutely delighted to talk. And I ended, ended up interviewing about 45 former colleagues. We shed a lot of tears, actually, to be fair, because it's pretty grim stuff. And there were some aspects of the, 
war, which I hadn't come across before. I mean, the sinking of Atlantic Conveyor, hearing an inside account, insider account of that was really deeply shocking. And that was, that was a really tr- troubling interview. And then there were other things, you know, a lot of guys came out with stories that just never told anyone before. One of our lovely air crewmen had sort of had had a really bad war, but he'd sort of disappeared off the map for a long time. And we finally tracked him down. And I I got him on the phone and I said, you know, you, you had such a terrible war. You know, what, what was it that stopped you talking? And there was one particular incident. I've actually put it in the book and I'm not I'm not going to trouble you with, with, with the incident itself. But it was just it was something that was deeply shocking uh, uh, that took place during a rescue um, from one of the sunken ships from HMS Coventry. It had troubled him so much that he'd never actually told anyone except me, and he'd told his wife before, and now I was the second person to hear about this in 26 or 27 years. Uh, you know, and then my, my mate Paul McIntosh, who, was a, who became a Harrier pilot shortly afterward, after this thing finished, he'd been flying his Wessex down there, and he'd gone head-to-head with a couple of Skyhawks. We were on the same squadron. I had no idea. I never knew about it. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. Mark Evans, I've talked to you about earlier, who, who's also known as Jafer, he'd gone head-to-head with a Pukara. He hadn't thought to bother to tell anyone about it, but <laughs> these extraordinary things had happened. And so I sort of put it all together. And I got advice. The first thing I did, actually, was to go and get advice from a guy called Roland White, who wrote the book Vulcan and various other books. And he was very generous. He gave me an afternoon of his time, and he talked through some of the technical stuff about how to do it and how to structure it and how to think about it. And I ended up writing all these dits. And, and how it, what it ended up as was I put each dit that I got, each particular story, I put on a timeline. Uh, I had all of, I photocopied everybody's logbooks. I had, I had access to an amazing book called Aircraft of the Falklands, which was put together by a couple of civil servants, which told the story completely the wrong way around. It told it about the airframes and not about the people. But there was an absolute wealth of detail in there. So I've reversed the story out and made it much more about the people than about the airframes. But that allowed me also to put timelines together. So I ended up with uh, this huge Excel spreadsheet with about 600 line items on it. And each line item I I then allocated, I I put them in line, put them in order, allocated, um, you know, how much time, uh, how much time, how much space would this need in the book? Was this, is this a paragraph? Is this half a page? Is this a two page story? And then I could, I could work out, you know, I could start splitting it down into chapters and then trying to find out, you know, are there any, any particular sort of key things that, that would characterize each, each chapter? So it was very, very, very tightly structured. Uh, I, I hope that doesn't come across in the book, but I hope it makes it a much easier read as a result because the, the timeline's clear. And um, so the order of events is very much as it happened, you know, even though I wrote about it between sort of 25 and 28 years after the event. Um, oh, it's, which it's is, just you know, chockers on the way through. It, like it's, it's just, you know, one thing after another. And you see your mouth just keeps dropping yeah. each time you, you think something's pretty good, the next thing just tops it again. So, uh, yes. yeah. Know, and there's a lot of humour in it as well, actually. I mean, there's some incredibly funny things that happened when on one of the uh, one of the big container ships, Atlantic Causeway, which did manage to get into the Falklands um, quite late on, uh, had been taking down down these um, it, sort of down in the bowels of the ship. The air crew, of course, who are, are good at, at, at scrounging this um, some bits and pieces, had, had discovered a whole locker full of Mars bars, but they couldn't get any release authority to open it because. 
you know, the paperwork was in a wrong place or whatever. And anyway, they literally landed a helicopter on the back and with some, cha- you know, chain cutters and then just wandered down <laughs> and came back up and loaded, all, loaded this whole shake on of, of um, Mars bars onto, into the helicopter. So, so the boys had an awful lot of nutty um, to, to eat uh, over the coming days. And, and there were, ext- I mean, it, it, it was a great position to be in. I mean, especially after the war, we had um, amazing amounts of um, opportunity to, to leverage our, our position of as being able to transport stuff. And so we, we cornered the market, actually, after the war in eggs. Um, we, we were ridiculous. We ended up in, our, in the place we ended up uh, putting our squadron just after the war finished, about a week after the war finished. Um, we ended up shoving everything into an old warehouse. And we ha- I think we had one corner of the warehouse was taken up with 100,000 eggs, which we'd, mart- we'd, we'd just grabbed from all around the fleet. If you've ever read Catch-22, it's exactly the same sort of idea. Where they, they, in, in the book Catch-22, they corner the market in Egyptian cotton. We cornered the market in eggs. We also cornered the market in batteries at one point, you know, those little Duracell AA batteries, which we used because most of us had Sony Walkmans. They'd just come out at that stage. So this is really looking a long time back. And um, so we we all needed batteries for our Sony Walkman to listen to the music and stuff. Uh, Somebody had ordered, I think one of the um, maintainers, uh, engineers had put in an order for 100 batteries. Back comes 100,000 batteries. I lifted this load off. It's about a 3,000 pound load that I'd lifted off a ship. We had no idea what it was. And the the boys were very impressed to discover this was 100,000 batteries. So we we were able to distribute this stuff around and distribute largesse and bonhomie around the islands um, after the war because we had all this stuff. But, you know, that that was the humor side of it was was dead funny. And there's some incredibly funny things happened along the way. And, of course, black humor is how we all cope with this stuff. But there was also it was unbelievably grim at times, especially afterwards. um, There was an appalling accident. One of the Harriers loosed off a sidewinder missile into a bunch of soldiers on the airfield just afterwards. And it was really the, the whole thing was so deeply shocking because we during the war, you kind of expect stuff to happen and, and you can cope with dead bodies and injuries and wounds and stuff. And we all saw that and we saw people in very bad condition, but you're kind of armed and ready for it. Mentally, you can cope with it. But as soon as the war finished, it was sort of like you couldn't, you know, you, you weren't prepped, you'd let your guard down. And I, I just remember one day landing on a, on a, uh, a hospital ship to go and just after this terrible accident had happened and you know and interviewing some of my colleagues who who picked up the re- bits of these poor soldiers you know they were retching to themselves in the back you know of the helicopter because they're dealing with this terrible sight you know and some of the crewmen even in tears while they're saying come on we've got to get these guys to the hospital quick 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 and um, I went to the hospital ship the next day, sort of little knowing what my tasking happened to be. We, we were just given hours and hours of tasking to do, um, to move stuff around the islands and, and always on the hunt for fuel at any particular point, always looking out for fuel, always being careful of, of how much fuel we've got left and keeping an eye on the weather and all the other good stuff that you do. And I was sitting on the, on the deck of this ship and this young lad's brought out on a on a on a stretcher and and he's you know even younger than he's even younger than i was and and he was covered by one of those silver um survival blanket things and of course the downwash from even sitting on the deck the downwash blew this thing up and it just blew away to realize he revealed he had no limbs but from the waist downwards um from you know from the just below his um 
waste. And uh, it, it was it was a sickening sight and it lives with me to this day. So it was we, there was a lot of glory in what we did. There was a lot of fun in what we did. But we also did things and saw things that human beings really ought not to do to one another. And um, that brings a lot of scars with it. And so I, I, I didn't want the book to be I, it's a boy's own adventure story in, in so many ways. But it's also uh, it, it, it's um, it, it was pretty grim, actually. A lot of it was very, very grim. Um, and it. it carries a carries a scars on in for uh, for a long time and that's that's a a, a thing that we're going to have to deal with for the the veterans in iraq and afghanistan who saw an awful lot more it, it's going to take a long time for the wounds to heal the mental wounds to heal yeah there's lots of extremes uh, that's that's for sure certainly all right. Well, look. I, I think we've. Uh, if we haven't sold you on the book by now, then uh, I'm not sure what's going to sell you because it is definitely a great read. And, and Harry, you've put a heap of work into it. I, I must admit, you've got a second book out um, that I haven't got to yet. So, if you want to give that a quick plug, ah, yeah, that's great fun. Um, I, well, it, it was my. I, I, I'm actually. I'm in a completely different field at the moment. So, I'm used to writing um, books on marriage and relationships. That's my. That's my world at the moment, um, which is very, very far removed. But I decided I wanted to write a novel um, much more up to date. It's set in about 2009, and it's about a young um, seeking pilot, so seeking Mark IV commando pilot. Or he's not—he's not a—he's not, not a commando pilot when he starts, but he is um, later on in the book. And it's all set in the time of, of Somalia and piracy and stuff. I hope you know. I think if people like Scram, then hopefully they'll really like. Jungly, it's called, and I've just re-released it, relaunched it. It's got a very fetching orange cover with a seeking hovering in a dust storm, just in in the centre of it. And it's a, I, I hope, a cracking good read. My my teenage boys loved it. My wife loved it, and the various junglies who've read it since um, have said they've enjoyed it as well. So it's all good stuff, and and that also is drawn from real life experiences. And it's obviously um, the, the the outline of the story is made up, but it's a cracking good adventure story of of a guy escaping from Somalia, getting qualified as a jungler, and then um, having to go in and and catch the bad guys back in in the same same area in Somalia. So it's all all good boys' own adventure stuff. And that's called jungly. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure I put links on the blog post that goes out with that, this for, for both books. And uh, look, that's been a lot of fun. Like, I feel there's so much more there we could talk about. But uh, look, I've had a ball. So, look, Harry, thank you very much for, for sharing the stories and uh, especially for all the hard work in, in recording it all. So, look, yeah, thanks very much. No, well, that's, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Mick. That was Harry Benson talking about his experiences and those of the British helicopter aircrew from the Falklands War, which is captured in his book, Scram. In typical military fashion, when Harry returned to the UK from winter in the, the deep South Atlantic where the, the Falklands are, his very next uh, training assignment, he was sent to, to Norway for Arctic uh, survival training. The book is, is just chockers all the way through with these amazing tales, which we've only just sort of touched on here, even though we've been going for for quite a while. For instance, and I love this one, the there's one stage there where the, the Land Force commander has his Jeep external loaded up by a Sea King from the, the main landing area up to where he is on, on the front line. And the unfortunate crew gets geographically embarrassed and they fly overhead the command group. And while the, the commander's watching, they go and drop his Jeep on a hill that's still in Argentine 
uh, held uh, territory. The UK forces then have to actually shell and uh, and drop artillery shells on the jeep to destroy it because it wasn't clearly if uh, if the code book was actually still in the the glove box. Another tale covers when a Wessex has was found after it landed to actually have landed on top of a, a telegraph wire, and they're just lucky there was just enough slack in the wire for it to actually sag underneath the aircraft and hold, and not to snap as they were were coming down on top of it. There are links on the show notes for this episode at rotarywingshow.com, the both of Harry's books, and also to the book he mentions, which is called Special Forces Pilot by Colonel Richard Hutchings, which covers the, the one-way Sea King flight that uh, went uh, basically westward with the idea of uh, doing a, a raid on the air bases there. Latest news on World Helicopter Day is that there is now about 20 event locations confirmed globally. We're still a few more in the pipeline for the third Sunday in August. And one of the UK events is being organised by Mark Service. And I was able to get him on the, the line to just quickly talk about what they have planned. Yeah, certainly, Mick. We're quite excited about it down here because it's the first time we've done anything to Mark World Helicopter Day. So uh, we really are going all out to get uh, as many attractions as we can. And obviously we're, we're hoping to fly the Whirlwind, which is the only one left flying in the world. And uh, what we do with that, we do a short search and rescue demonstration. We've got a mannequin dressed as a winchman. We're not allowed to do the winching with a, a live person, due to rules and regulations. But uh, yeah, we'll be doing the winching with the, uh, the mannequin. Uh, we've got some visiting helicopters as well, some quite unique ones. We've got, uh, I've just heard in the last 10 minutes that uh, the Coast Guard are bringing a, an Augusta Westland 139 from uh, St. Arthur over in Wales. Uh, so that'll be quite an attraction. And uh, some of our friends uh, who also own historic helicopters, uh, one of them is going to be bringing a Wasp helicopter that took part in the Falkland War. And the other one is a former Swiss Air Force Alouette 2. The other aircraft we're hoping to have join us on the day is one of the uh, heli-operation Sea Kings that are uh, based down at Portland, and they're currently using those to train German Navy crews uh, flying the Sea Kings. So it'll be quite a, a unique gathering of uh, unusual helicopters. And I saw that too. You talk about the uh, the, the NAFI uh, T-Wagon. I wasn't sure what the NAFI oh, yeah. stands for. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a 1937 vintage so World War II vintage vehicle. So NAFI is the uh, Naval Army and Air Forces Institute. Uh, it's kind of like a club where the servicemen could go after duty. But what they did is these wagons would go to uh, troops in the field, uh, you know, when ships were alongside. They'd drive around the airfields as well. And, uh, you know, as Brits love our tea. So, uh, you know, this wagon would drive around to an old airfield when the engineers were, you know, they'd get five minutes spare uh, they could go to this wagon and get a nice fresh cup of tea and maybe a donut or a bit of cake and something like that. So it's a very popular piece of equipment, as you can imagine. So this one's 1937, but it's, uh, it's not really a tea wagon anymore. It's been refurbished. It's now got a coffee machine in the back and uh, ice cream. So uh, it's <laughs> now an ice cream van. And how old is the whirlwind? So I guess it's like the, the pre-runner to the Wessex. Is that kind of the, the yes. progression? Yeah, that's right. So the... Uh, the Whirlwind we've got here was built uh, in 1955. Its, uh, its first flight was in January 1956 at the Westlands factory. It was originally powered by a radial engine, but in uh, 1961-62 it was taken back to the factory 
a whole load of modifications were done to the aircraft, which included fitting it with a, a gnome engine, so a jet turbine engine. So that greatly improved the performance and it made it much better for search and rescue, uh, a lot more power available. Um, so, yeah, it went on from there. That, uh, that's the Mark 10 whirlwind. It led on to the Wessex. The Wessex was a similar arrangement with the engine and the nose with a dry shaft going up between the two pilots. But the big difference with the Wessex is it had two gnomes in the engine, uh, two gnomes in the, in the nose. So again, uh, even more power available, and it was uh, even more successful as a search and rescue helicopter. And of course, uh, that led on to the the Sea King. And you know, everybody's familiar with the Sea King. It was a fabulous uh, search and rescue helicopter, and greatly missed here in the UK. And for folks who are in the UK, how can they find out more information about uh, your event? Yeah, we've got, uh, we've, got a, we've got a website, which is uh, historichelicopters.co.uk, uh, and uh, there's, uh, there's a Facebook page as well. We're in the process of condensing the Facebook pages into one. But uh, if you do go uh, in Mark 10 on Facebook, uh, that should come up. And you'll get all the information there. The posters on there with all the information. Loads of stuff for children to do. We're not just focused on helicopters. We've got our England and Bath rugby player going to come and do some mini rugby sessions for the children. Uh, there's all sorts of ball games going on. We've got uh, swing ball, volleyball, football, you name it. There won't be any horses around because horses and helicopters don't mix really. But... Uh, yeah, there were plenty to see and plenty to do. Uh, but a collection of classic cars coming as well. Stuff for the car enthusiasts to do as well. Oh, good on you, Mark. That's fantastic to step that up, and I can't wait to see yes, some of the photos come out from the event. So all the very, very best with it. Thanks, Mick, and uh, thanks for your help in publicising it. Just a, a quick correction there. So Mark gave out the website address, but I double-checked it. It's actually historichelicopters.com and not the .co dot uk so it's historichelicopters.com the german helicopter association has also just taken up the day and we'll be encouraging all their members to join in with a photo campaign as a tie-in with the the goal of promoting the services provided by the industry thank you to the supporters of the podcast on patreon for your help in covering some of their hosting fees again if you like the sort of content please consider visiting rotarywingshow.com forward slash support as any support goes a long way, and it's very, very appreciated. If you want to keep up with news in between the episodes, then the Facebook page is probably the easiest way to see the occasional updates. If you're on Facebook, just do a quick search for Rotary Wing Show, and that will uh, get you to the page. If you have ideas for the show or tips on making it better, then uh, please do send them through on email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Till next time, I've been your host, Mick Cullen, and thanks for spending the time to become you know, a little bit more knowledgeable about the helicopter industry and some of its history. <laughs>